So maybe in the last couple of minutes here, give us some final advice to budding entrepreneurs. And this is not age specific because I think, you know, let's face it, we're in a really tough time. Um, a lot of my friends who are in their, you know, full stride of their careers, they are being furloughed, let go. It's just, these are tough times and uh, they're having to reboot, restart. Um, and maybe people coming out of college or whatnot are not really optimistic about the future, but give them some advice about starting down this entrepreneur path with it. What should they be looking out for? What should they expect? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, I think one of the most important things to think about in the beginning of our careers you know, is that we're going to be, we're going to have this default desire to focus on whatever is in the headlines, whatever is cool, the coolest company that's on the cover of Fast Company or Wired Magazine, the coolest technologies that everyone's talking about. We're going to want to build our network with the most important people that we think are being written about or that are you know, the, the most um, respected in our industry. And there's this like, but, but you're not, you know, on your own doing that. Everyone is doing that. And, uh, and I just, uh, and then when it comes to choosing jobs or choosing choices or choosing the people to focus on building a relationship with, what I always like to remind myself that great opportunities never have great opportunity in the subject line. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in some ways we should see it as a negative signal if something is so clearly a great opportunity because everyone's talking about it. Yeah. If some company is so great because everyone wants to work there or the stock is trading at an all time high, you know, instead yeah. try to turn into your inner curiosities and the contrarian view on the things that you think are popular that no one's talking about, you know, ask questions to find the underlying plumbing that everyone's ignoring that matters more than anyone realizes and then jump in there. And if people don't get it, that is a good sign. Gain confidence from doubt because it means that you're onto something. And to remember that nothing is ever achieved. Um, nothing extraordinary at least is never achieved through ordinary means. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Very the creators of the famous stand-up Veridesk and other office furniture. If you're like me, you're suddenly working from home. My best productivity tip is to set up a dedicated workspace. My comfy couch or the kitchen table so close to the refrigerator and snacks wasn't really working for me. So I recently set up a fully loaded home office setup using office furniture pieces from Very, and now I've got a whole mission control in a separate room for my kids and the dogs ready to roll. Very has everything you need to transform your home workspace, from desks, ergonomic chairs, and converters that transform any table in your home into a standing desk. Right now, you can save 10% off Very Home Office products with the code WFH2020. That's WFH2020. See the full collection and save at Very.com. That's V-A-R-I.com and use the code WFH2020 and check out to save 10%. Now let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, Scott Belsky, founder of Behance, chief product officer at Adobe, author of The Messy Middle, and you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey everyone, what's up? I am Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. 
Scott, welcome to the show. And I usually ask my guests, how'd you get this job? Well, my current role running products for all of the you know creative part of Adobe um, came out of being uh, acquired originally by Adobe and my, my business Behance, which was a five-year bootstrap, two-year venture-backed journey to help organize the creative world at work and help creative professionals get attribution for their work. You know, we became a part of Adobe. And then at that point, I had the opportunity to think, okay, you know, am I a entrepreneur who just loves to go back and always create something new or is my passion with the creative world and outfitting creatives to make ideas happen? And I definitely landed on the ladder and over the years uh, took on more responsibility to um, think about the future of creativity. A lot of people watch this show. They're freelancers, entrepreneurs, uh, small business owners. There's also a fair amount of people, I think, who are working uh, and managing big brands. And creativity is a theme and a thread that runs through everything that we do. And I'm sure that the audience is thinking about too. Can we take it back in the chronology a little bit and talk about young Scott and what did you want to be when you grew up? Were you thinking about creativity? Were you, you know, do you have a pen and paper? Were you sketching? Like what, what were your aspirations back then? Well, I, I found a picture uh, at my uh, parents' home um, of me at the age of, I believe, eight or nine with uh, an area in our basement called Scott's Creativity Area. And I guess I put up signs and kind of claimed the boiler room as my own. And aside from the temperature, uh, I think it was a uh, it was like a spot where I hung out all the time and and came up with all kinds of cool things. Um, and so I've always been a tinkerer. Um, I've always been humbled by what the creative world is capable of that well surpasses my skills and capabilities. Over the years with Behance, just coming in, in the morning and going and seeing what the creatives I follow have done you know, overnight somewhere else in the world is just such an awe-inspiring thing for me. And um, and so I, I was always kind of tinkering. I also was always interested in business and design. And so in some ways, this is the, uh, and in technology. So it's sort of the intersection of all of these interests, you know, yeah. was in fact Behance and now Adobe. And what did your parents think? And I, I asked this question with a little bit of a qualifier and that, you know, um, I think a lot of our younger audience, maybe the high schoolers, college students, whatnot, they're trying to figure out what they're great at, where their passion is. And they are, some of them, I think, are struggling with, you know, um, outside voices telling them, oh, you should go to law school, or you should be a doctor, or, uh, or you should be an accountant, or a plumber. Uh, and these are not necessarily their dreams, but maybe the dreams of their parents. So I'm just always curious. Did your parents give you any pushback on that creative thing? Because, you know, being a starving art, artist uh, can be a problem. Did you get pushback or were they pretty accepted? Well, I'll tell you, my parents were um, definitely in different fields. So my mother was a Spanish teacher uh, and when she was younger and my father was a doctor. So um, I, uh, you know, my interests were, were uniquely my own. But they did try to always expose me to people that they knew in the community that they felt were more aligned with interests I had. I remember my father taking me on a fly fishing trip with him one year with another father and son. And this, this guy ran a sticker company. So literally <laughs> my fantasy uh, of, a, of a factory that made all kinds of stickers for kids and for industrial uses. And I remember after this fishing trip, he sent me a box of seconds, you know, all those stickers mm -hmm. that something was wrong with them. It was, 
I mean, that feeling was just one of the greatest feelings of my life, just getting this endless package of creativity and like yeah. tons of sticker material just absolutely blew my mind. So they were always supportive, you know, in the ways that they knew how. And I think I'm, you know, I'm grateful to them mostly for the, you know, precious possibility of endless possibility, of, of, of precious opportunity of endless possibility. I mean, they always, whatever I was interested in doing, they were willing to, um, to uh, support me. They, um, you know, whether it was a program I wanted to sign up for, you know, they would sign me up and pay for it type of thing when I was a kid. I think those things you know, matter a lot. And, uh, and I don't think they, you know, when I, when I said I was an entrepreneur, I think that they were nervous. I think they were like, so you're creating a site for creators, you know, what does that even mean? Yeah. But, uh, but give encourage. Us, give us some context on that timing, you know, when you're starting to think about Behance and, you know, if you don't know Behance, you're living in a cave probably somewhere, but give us some context on the, you know, the year and when was that? Because when you mentioned stickers, flutter memories come back for me. I, you know, I'm here in Southern California, the mecca for skirt, surf skate snow. I thought I wanted to go into action sports. And I remember, you know, going into, well, like Wahoo's Fish Taco, which is like a rite of passage down here in SoCal. And you, they encouraged you to bring your Vans or Billabong or, or Volcom stickers and put it in the restaurant somewhere. And especially like the first one down in Laguna, um, just covered with stickers. And that was like, that always got me sort of lit up. And I didn't even realize it, that that kind of creativity really inspired me. But what, what year are we talking about here now with you starting to think about being an entrepreneur? Well, I think it was around 2005, 2006. Okay. I was working in a job out of college um, in an investment bank, but doing non-finance things at that point around organizational design, like some stuff that was interesting to me. It was important in my development as a leader, but was not correlated with building technology products and um, serving in the creative industries. And I just started tinkering and, um, and, you know, late nights, every night, you know, spending a lot of time alone, kind of dreaming up what this could be, writing a lot of prose documents, doing a lot of design yeah. of like concepts and things like that, wireframes. And what was your meta. college major? Yeah. What was that? What was your college major? So my college major was, um, actually graduated general studies, you know, <laughs> because I took so many classes that they gave me like this general studies, yeah. um, uh, degree, but my, my classes were mostly in environmental economics, economics or business, and design and environmental analysis. So mm -hmm. I went to Cornell as an undergrad. They have this major called DEA, Design Environmental Analysis, that I took a bunch of courses in. And then, you know, when I was when I was starting to tinker with the ants in 2005, 2006, I was connected with um, a freelance designer by the name of Matthias Correa, who was just an incredible graphics designer and became um, a real partner for me and eventually a co-founder, you know, um, when Behance became a real company, you know, I made it clear to him that his DNA was as much in this as, as mine. Yeah. And we worked together for many years. Yeah. I'm sort of reading into this a little bit. Tell me how it was. I mean, um, him being such a creative force, a designer, you, sounding a little bit more at least on the surface right now more technical sort of a yin and yang kind of relationship but i want to go back to 2005 and just sort of put down a marker because that's a that's the year a little website called youtube came out mm -hmm. and really that was a signal for me i was working at a big company um i had a big job a big salary at a team 
I was working at um, the Hollywood Studios. I was doing as at Universal, Pict- Universal Pictures. I had a $40 million P&L. Uh, I was on the brand marketing and strategy team. I went to school for business um, with an emphasis on marketing, but um, I ended up falling later into production. And, and 2005 was a real pivotal year because it signaled to me, with, especially with YouTube, that the playing field was being leveled especially for people who aspire to be creative like me. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's in a really, really important timing. And I'm always curious about timing, like, you know, how much luck plays into your moves. Of course, you know, that old saying, what, you know, luck is where, you know, that hard work and preparation and timing all sort of can meet at the same place. But um, yeah, those are good times. Those are just the beginning. And as you're saying, as you're talking about YouTube, I'm thinking about a bunch of other products around that time as well, that the general theme was democracy, democratization of creativity and yeah. the idea that you could be discovered and, you know, get attribution or at least get the spotlight um, for something without having to be represented by a mainstream kind of studio or whatever. I think it's a great point. There was a bit of like a Cambrian explosion at that moment. And yeah. the, the the specific tension point or problem that I saw in the creative world, especially amongst my friends who are architects or illustrators or motion graphics artists or photographers, is these people were always represented by headhunters and agencies. They always had out of date personal websites and it didn't matter because no one found them anyways, because yeah. you couldn't find them on a Google search and their work, they never got attribution for their work. So they, you know, everything, a great campaign would, you know, the, the, the big agency would take credit for it. When in fact that agency hired another agency that hired a headhunter that hired a freelancer who really did all the work. And yeah. that like really frustrated me. And, and so the idea yeah. of Behance and to your point, YouTube was around, there was embeddable video players at the time or soon after, you know, it became pretty clear that you could have a multimedia expression um, and deconstruct the portfolio from someone's personal website to a platform of discovery like Behance. Yeah. And let's remind people too. I mean, Again, this timing, we're talking 2005, 2006, like Facebook is barely crawling out of the dorms. Um, LinkedIn is not a thing. Um, even the internet is, you know, we're barely into this thing, maybe what, nine years-ish. I mean, people have websites, but it's not super sophisticated. Bandwidth is still pretty terrible. iPhone 1 comes out two years later and really sort of, breaks open, you know, um, the personal camera and video capabilities, but it's iPhone one, not iPhone 12. Right. And so, uh, you're a pioneer. I mean, this is like, you know, visionary stuff where you really, it seems like you really saw a need for stuff and you, you filled it. Yeah. I, I just kind of pursued the, um, the, the source of frustration. I mean, it's funny. We have a focus group in 2007, of um and it was our first and only focus group we never did it again <laughs> we we got a bunch of creatives we knew from new york um and we you know matthias and i hosted them for wine and cheese and we shared with them we asked them you know do you do you need a social network or you know, a professional network to showcase yeah. your work and you know all the things we were talking about doing and and they universally said no like the last thing we need i mean we've got myspace we have youtube That's we right, have yeah. LinkedIn, we have Facebook, like the last thing we need is another social network. And we left that 
you know, that at least that conversation with some concern, but then followed up with these folks and asked them what their top five professional problems were in their career. And the problems were things like, well, I never get attribution. I have a hard time getting lead generation or the only leads I get are from other friends who are in the same field. Yeah. Um, you know, my website's always out of date. You know, the things that they said told us that they needed what they didn't know they needed. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I think there was, you know, it, it's always back to customer empathy, right? And um, getting off your passion for the solution and focusing on really where the pain points are. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, I think that quote that gets attributed to Henry Ford, you know, if I would have asked them what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse is probably worth underscoring a little bit here. And you guys having the foresight to sort of look beyond the surface criticisms or feedback to really get to the heart of the matter was super smart. That's a really great lesson. I appreciate that. Um, and I also remember too, you know, if we're talking about Adobe too, uh, your future partner and now your, well, your, I guess partner's appropriate word, you're sort of leading the charge. These were times when it was, I mean, also just getting started because I remember the Adobe suite wasn't what it is now. It wasn't like in the cloud and it was kind of expensive and it was super module and you had, you know, you had to kind of cherry pick, are you a Photoshop guy or are you an illustrator guy or, you know, or if you had all three, it was, you know, and you're right. It was difficult, I think, for creatives to, to really get organized and have everything, you know, at their fingertips like we do now. I think, you know, again, if you're younger and you have less experience than us, maybe you're taking some of this stuff for granted. And that's why I, I mention it. But um, those are just the good old days. And they're just a few years behind us. You know, it's not that long ago when things were just getting started. So I, I'm just reflecting and reminiscing a little bit how, how good we have it now. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, using Photoshop when I was 13 I, I'm not sure how I paid for it, so <laughs> may, may have gotten it somewhere. But you know, and, and then fast forward to today. I mean, Photoshop is now a system. You can create cloud documents that you can work across mobile and desktop, and um, and the integration of all of these products is pretty phenomenal at this point. You have things like Creative Cloud libraries that allows you to you know move assets between teams and between products. But you know, I came in in late 2012 to Adobe. Adobe had just made the transition from software to services. They were suddenly more affordable for more people. And as a result, you had tons of new people in the top of the funnel that would land in a product like Photoshop and they'd have no idea what to do next. Yeah. So the the challenge that I've had, you know, over the past eight years, I guess, with a, a small hiatus in between, is to build a set of products, mobile products, services, first mile experiences, um, initiatives to simplify the UI to build new learning um, platforms like Adobe Live and, and Behance, on Behance, which is now like a 24-7 live streaming service of customers and our products. I mean, these are some of the fun things that uh, you know we've tackled ever since that transition. Well, it's been a game changer for me. And it's been, a, I think, a part we can credit Adobe and probably now credit you a little bit with you know helping them along. Um, all of these sort of game-changing, pivotal, either technologies or advances, whether you're talking about the iPhone, which really opened the floodgates for um, people to get into what I do, which is filmmaking and telling stories with video, um, 
that opened the door for, you know, DSLR cameras, you know, and I mean, the barriers to entry to what I do used to be very, very high, which is why I waited so long working for someone else before I finally cut the cord or haven't had enough courage to cut the cord. Because up until about 2005, you know, you had to be JJ Abrams or like his brother to, you know, get permission to make stuff, make content. And then there was really no place to put it. And, you know, if it weren't for people like Adobe and, um, and whatnot, uh, you know, Apple, let's give Apple some props to creative people like me wouldn't have the tools to make my art. Um, so all of that is super necessary. And all, all of that was super pivotal to, to really bring all this to where we are right now, which is so many tools for so many people without barriers to entry. You know, when you're talking mobile, you're talking um, intelligent and logical UX, UI. I mean, I remember learning Illustrator, for example, when I first got started, because I was into, you know, a lot of vector stuff. And it wasn't intuitive to me, at least. I'm not that smart. But now as I look at, you know, I have the Adobe Cloud sitting right here on my computer and I use it every single minute of every single day for everything I do in my business. I mean, it's so intuitive and it's so connected. And um, I feel like um, you guys are doing a good job with letting it talk to each other, right? Like whether it's After Effects, working smoothly and seamlessly with Photoshop and Photoshop with Illustrator and, and InDesign and Lightroom, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Um, these are incredible, t incredibly powerful tools, you know, killer apps, if you want to say, an old term. So I mean, I would say, listen, first of all, thank you. And, you know, I think a good product leader is never fully satisfied with his or her products. So mm -hmm. for everything you mentioned, I'm like, oh, there's five things that we know are a problem and we need, we're working on them. Yeah. So things are getting better. But I mean, I would also add to your point about the accessibility of these products, yeah. you know, and how it's empowering, you know, to you and your experience and many others. It's also that the distribution platforms are also now democratized. So you don't need to compete to get the 8 p.m. slot on uh, ABC, you know, yeah. to have your moment, you can, you know, obviously everyone can publish and, and promote their product or their 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 creations. Um, the the last thing I would just say though is that not only is you know that's that's pretty that's been the story of the last like 10, 15 years or so or whatever 20 years of of technology and creativity, but I think one of the future stories is um, is just how important creativity is to help humans stand out in what they do that is uniquely human yeah. because we're, we're now being disintermediated by bots and algorithms and automation right. and our artificial intelligence. And if you look at like, what are humans going to do? What, what, what are, what are safe jobs of the future? They are content creation. They are um, being in a, in a, in a workplace and having the tools to visually express your ideas and compel other people to change their minds, like showing data and creative and compelling ways you know, if you can, you would argue that creative tools, you know, the deployment of these types of tools is sort of like the, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the deployment of productivity tools. Everyone stood out at their work because of how productive they were right. until algorithms outpaced human productivity. And now it's like, you'll stand out based on how creative you are. Yeah. And so that's amazing. Like I think about the implications of that for the types of tools we need to create what we have to do in education, like creativity needs to get the heck out of the bounds of an art class and yeah. permeate the rest of the curriculum. So, you know, those are some other things that I'm pretty passionate about in this role. 
Let's switch gears and talk about The Messy Middle for a minute. I want to know why you wrote the book and who you wrote it for. Sure. Well, I, you know, I'm always inspired by frustration. Behance was frustration with how disorganized the creative world is. Um, my work at Adobe is frustration with how inaccessible a lot of these products are. Um, with The Messy Middle, it was frustration with our obsession with the starts and finishes of every venture or bold project or turnaround. Yeah. It just seems that as people, we love headlines, we love quick takeaways and sound bites, and we just we celebrate the starts and we celebrate the finishes, whether they're good or bad. We talk about them, and there's very little discussion about this in you know in between volatility, um, and that in between volatility is what determines kind of the slope of your you know is it a positive slope or a negative slope, um, kind of tells you which way you're headed, and I think it's all down to two things. It's all about enduring those lows. We're not our best selves because we're making decisions out of fear and we're, you know, we're churning and our, we're not giving our team good direction. Teams are breaking apart. We're not being patient enough to let strategy play out. So how do you endure those lows? Yeah. And how do you optimize the heck out of everything that works? Um, whenever anything is high, when th- something is positive, how do you do more of that, both in your product or your experience or your content filmmaking or whatever it is, or how you work, how you manage others? You know, how do you tune in there? And so this is a book about managing volatility and navigating the lows and highs. And I just went out and interviewed a lot of people and you know, assembled a set of insights that I felt were critical to uh, that inner journey. I think one question everyone has is, you know, how long do you give this great idea with quotes until you cut bait? You know, yeah. you, might, you might be right in the thick of it. I remember reading this book in high school. I think it's that um, Think and Grow Rich book or something. And there's this story about this gold miner in California who started on this mine. He was digging and digging and digging for years and finally just gave up, abandoned the mine. And then someone else came along and dug like, two or three th- feet more and discovered like the richest gold mine in the history of the world. And it's that lesson like you know, if he had only gone three more feet, you know, he would have had it. So what are some of the signals? What advice can you give to the audience, my audience about, yeah. how, you know, how do you know when to give up or pivot or. Yeah. Now, now as an advisor and an investor to many startups, um, I get this question quite often from entrepreneurs that I've worked with and or that I'm working with. And uh, my answer is always the same. When you set out on something that you know doesn't exist yet, you're doing so based on a sense of conviction that is somewhat naive. You have a belief in what the world should look like in your particular industry or space or whatever you're doing. And then you set out to make that so, to fix that problem, to change your world as you see it. In that process, you work with a lot of potential customers, you learn about competitors, you get MVPs out there, you start to see what people are doing or can't do, and then you get a ton more data. And as you continue in this journey, that data will either give you more or less conviction in that end state that you imagine, you know, the way you think the world should be. Yeah. What I advise people is to tune into Forget whether there's product market fit or anything of that nature, whether it's really working in the market or whether you're generating revenue. Forget that for a moment and ask yourself a simple question. Based on all you know now, do you have more or less conviction in that end state? If you have less conviction, if you've learned all these truths 
that you didn't know when you were in that naive kind of ignorance is bliss moment at the start, then you should quit and try something else. Yeah. But if you have more conviction based on all this data you've accumulated, even if you're still, you know, struggling and in that very messy middle and totally, you know, struggling, it, you're just, it's par for the course. I mean, you're just in the messy middle. You've got to stick with it long enough to figure it out, which is, by the, by the way, one of the competitive advantages, perhaps the greatest competitive advantage of the successful teams that I know is that they just stuck together long enough to, you know, to, to let strategy be nourished by patience. Yeah. I mean, several icons come to mind, you know, Bezos, you know, all those years he was unprofitable and, you know, all of them, you know, look at Elon is doing his thing right now, right? Where everyone's questioning his judgment. Well, can he, can he run three companies? Can, can he change the auto industry? You know, there's a lot of examples of um, maybe even the jury's still out. But uh, and I'm glad you mentioned MVP, you know, um, minimum viable product. I think that's the acronym, right? And I think it's a really good and it's worth underscoring and saying again, under, you know, stating, restating, which is when you know your MVP um, or another way to say it is when you know really what you have to make in order mm -hmm. to keep living, um, that makes the decision a lot easier because I think, you know, this show is a great example. Like if you look at all the other shows in my space that you could call my competitors, um, they were all basically started by people who were millionaires and then decided, you know what? I have something to say and I want to start a podcast or a series. Um, and I either want to, you know, do it to hear my own voice or because I'm really knowledgeable and I want to share knowledge or I want to promote my products and sell more stuff. Um, I'm, you know, I've always been independent, uh, and I am not worried that we don't have gazillions and gazillions of people watching and listening. I just need the right amount of people. Right. And so what I, I know what that MVP mark is that, that budget mark, you know, what we need to make or spend or not spend and mm -hmm. that that's my metric. Um, and folded into that also is what you said like conviction wise, I call it ROJ or return on joy. Mm. I'm still, it still lights me up to do this every single day, even though I've been doing it for a decade now. Um, and that's how I know that I'm on the right course. So I, I appreciate you saying that. So I also wanted to know because creativity is, is so important and we're not just talking about people who are good at art or drawing or filmmaking um, I mean, you can be the most amazing florist or CPA and be, you know, artful and skillful. So, and I've asked a lot of people this, everyone from Sir Ken Robinson, who's, you know, just passed actually this, we lost him this month. He uh, had that incredible Ted talk about creativity. I've talked with Chase Jarvis, who's written a book on creativity. Give me your input on, so how do we, how do we know how, how can we find our creativity, develop it more, and and really use it to, you know, improve our lives and the and you know the lives of the people around us? How do you how do you find creativity when maybe you think I'm not that creative? Well, I would answer it in two ways. You know, there's there's one side of me that says that we've all got ideas. It's really about the other part of the equation, the organization around the ideas we've already got, that determines the impact we make with them. 
And so a lot of creative people I know actually have the opposite problem, which is they need to actually focus less energy on idea generation and creativity <laughs> and more on just the systems or the people and the accountability mechanisms that keep their ideas developing. Yeah. And traction and setting milestones for them. And, you know, and, and so it's that, that kind of equation of creativity, creativity times organization equals impact. It's like, you know, if you have a, endless creativity and zero organization, you're going to make zero impact. And so it's just a mental model that people need to think about. Yeah. But as for, as for where creativity comes from, I mean, listen, it's, it's a mistake of the eye that you follow and run with. It's the flexibility of misunderstanding someone, but then kind of getting curious about why and then following and you know pulling that thread further and coming up with a new idea. Um, it is also uh, it is also like the traumas of our life. It's the stuff that is unresolved that is manifested in different ways that allow us to go against the grain of the status quo and kind of you know shun it just for the hell of it, and then come up with something that no one else ever came up with because everyone else is going with it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a combination of all of these things, and I um, but I. I believe everyone, I mean, the human brain by default is creative. And there's a ton of research suggesting from our, you know, infancy that we are capable of problem solving and, you know, all the elements of creativity. And then of course it's the rest of our lives. What is it? The Picasso quote, quote like we're all born an artist and then it's kind of downhill from there. It's yeah. my interpretation of it. So uh, how do we, how do we preserve that? You know, what mechanisms do we use? What communities are we a part of that just keeps us curious? Talk to me about where you think the white space is right now. If, you know, if we put it through the lens of maybe what you're doing at Adobe, what, where's the white space? Where are the opportunities? What are we not focused on? Yeah, I'll give you like, I'll give you the medium term answer and the long term answer as I see it on the medium term side. Content creativity has always been kind of app specific or content specific. You know, you've started from content or you've started with an app with a blank page and you've just started to make stuff. Um, a new, a new and important trend is collaboration first creativity, where before you even start with a piece of content or before you even particularly start with an app, you actually start with who you're creating with. And, um, and then you share tools and you riff on each other and you share each other's assets. And it's um, you know, this hyper collaborative approach is really interesting because the past generation of creatives largely shun it. You know, the idea of someone else being in Premiere Pro with you or in mm -hmm. Photoshop with you is just like a shocker. And some custom customers say they would never want that. Yeah. And then you have a whole other set of customers that expect it. Yeah. And so it's a really interesting, you know, moment of clash, you know, that I think is super exciting to explore as a product maker. Um, and then the second answer I'd give you is really around the rise of the 3D and immersive medium. I, um, I firmly believe that screens are the new record players. You know, we will, <laughs> no one will know what to do with their screens anymore. There will be no reason for them because we will have glasses projecting light into our eyes that synthesize any degree of size of screen with the highest fidelity you can imagine 
And um, and then just the idea of buying a clunky thing for your wall is the, will be the silliest notion. And in that world, what will happen around every object around us? How many of them will be real? How many of them will be augmented and 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 the augmentation will it be interactive and animated you know why should a sign just be stagnant it should it should invite us it should it should tease us and make jokes with us and and so there's this new explosion on the periphery it isn't here yet and i think still kind of a, a novelty for most but it's um i think it's the future and i'm really excited to play a role in it that's cool stuff i've been dreaming about you know, holograms and all of that since I saw Star Wars back in like 1977. And, and I've also been dreaming of the day where I could sort of like, you know, Chromecast or Apple TV, my content on any surface I wish at any time at any moment. And you're right. Like these clunky screens are, they're not mobile. They're a pain. They got to be plugged in. Wouldn't it be great to just have your content? Let's say it's on a phone. And you can cast it up somewhere, either in 2D or 3D and project, you know, with the brilliance of a 5G, you know, whatever. Um, that's, I love that. That's, I, I, I'm looking forward to that day. That's going to be amazing. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> but we've got to outfit creatives to create for it. You know, it's, it's one thing to support it technologically, but actually I think the longer pull is to get creatives to adopt it. So that's why it's uh it's, it's hard work that, um, that we're doing. So maybe in the last couple of minutes here, give us some final advice to budding entrepreneurs. And this is not age specific because I think, you know, let's face it, we're in a really tough time. Um, a lot of my friends who are in their, you know, full stride of their careers, they are being furloughed, let go. It's just, these are tough times and, uh, they're having to reboot, restart, um, and maybe people coming out of college or whatnot are not really optimistic about the future, but give them some advice about starting down this entrepreneur path with it. What should they be looking out for? What should they expect? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the most important things to think about in the beginning of our careers is that we're going to be, we're going to have this default desire to focus on whatever is in the headlines, whatever is cool, the coolest company that's on the cover of Fast Company or Wired Magazine, the coolest technologies that everyone's talking about. We're going to want to build our network with the most important people that we think are being written about or that are you know, the, the most um, respected in our industry. And there's this like, but, but you're not, you know, on your own doing that. Everyone is doing that. And, uh, and I just, uh, and then when it comes to choosing jobs or choosing choices or choosing the people to focus on building a relationship with, what I always like to remind myself that great opportunities never have great opportunity in the subject line. <laughs> um, and so in some ways we should see it as a negative signal if something is so clearly a great opportunity because everyone's talking about it. Yeah. If some company is so great because everyone wants to work there or the stock is trading at an all time high, you know, instead yeah. try to turn into your inner curiosities and the contrarian view on the things that you think are popular that no one's talking about, you know, ask questions to find the underlying plumbing that everyone's ignoring that matters 
more than anyone realizes and then jump in there. And if people don't get it, that is a good sign. Gain confidence from doubt because it means that you're onto something. And to remember that nothing is ever achieved, um, nothing extraordinary at least, is never achieved through ordinary means. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that. <laughs> you know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. It's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather. The dangling carrot that hang from the rear view. Uh-huh. Your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near you. Backseat drivers got nothing but two cents. Shotgun riders too biased, they all liars. I should get an A for effort, I'm too tired. But I'm never giving up, that's why I'm kinda admired. Role model, like it or not, I gotta play it. Sugarcoat the rhyme sometimes, but still say it. Said I was quitting at 40, it's just a fib. I'm still a kid that's wiping the food off of my bib. You ever wanted something so bad that you could taste it? Cried over every opportunity wasted good and bad news which one you want first either way you pick the bad still gonna hurt you the worst i never got to bask in the fruits of the label and i never got the cash from that dude from the label i'm just thinking back I would have did it the same Uh In hindsight, I'm the only one to blame I ain't picky, I'm just real specific I want nothing less than terrific I know y'all get it I'm aggressive, so our style is clashing Killer instinct and I play with passion I'd rather be hated for being one of the realest Than get a lot of love for these overrated appearance I can stand on skill alone, but I'm a package deal I can write the whole song and rap for real I got my head in the cloud with a pun intended I don't need to see nobody I don't want no visits Introverted, I just flirt with the music Small circles, how I choose it Stay away from squares, they the one that look like a L7 I've been doing this since I was 11 And the shit gets real Jump off, I'm winning. I still love you though. Shout out to the women. Watch, you was cool. They was acting wild. Walk in, leave drunk. It was packed for hours. Belligerent students, man, the shit got messy. Remind me of my first show I did at the Red Sea. I ain't had no DJ, just the tape deck. Opened up for Son of Star Child, I love that. Met this cat named Larry, he was with the Avengers. Showed me how to make moves and walk with the winners. Soon went to the pen, I never seen him again. But I did a couple shows with his friends. Lumberjack, brown clown, so and so, and do with the orange pants. Ten years later, now I'm rocking the orange pants. <laughs> But they Jabos though, okay. you know, <laughs> fresh to death, yeah. always and forever. Uh-huh. Don't get it twisted, Don't. number one listed, uh-huh. Nitro.